Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Centre for Independent Studies. My name is Tom Switzer. I'm the Executive Director here at CIS. It's great to have you here this evening. We are especially happy to be here tonight because um, this evening marks the launch of a program that we've created no. here at CIS called Culture, Prosperity no. and Civil Society. And on cultural issues, you just have to look around. Yes, we are indeed still a free country, but the politically correct times are such that all too often serious subjects can't be debated openly without inspiring immediate hysteria and immediate hysteria from people whom John Howard once described as self-appointed cultural dietitians. And then on the prosperity front, we are all too often fed a diet of doom and gloom that life is getting worse for people all around the world. But by any objective criteria, we live in very prosperous times. And that's thanks largely due to capitalism. Millennials, and the CIS recently did some polling with YouGov on this question, Millennials will quite understandably complain about being priced out of the housing market, but there's still no excuse for unashamedly embracing socialism, as 60% of millennials, these are people born between 1980 and 1996, they believe that socialism is a good thing. But they should know that no economy in history has benefited from socialism. All economies that have enjoyed sustained prosperity and economic growth have done so through what? Free trade and free markets. Socialists need to remember you don't tax a loss, you only tax a profit. Profit, capitalism, creates the revenue to provide public health and education and law and order. And then there's the third pillar of our new program, civil society. Now in a preface to a book published by my colleague, Peter Curdy called The Tyranny of Tolerance, John Howard wrote, quote, freedom of religion and expression, both assumed as givens in our society, are under increasing assault from those who proclaim themselves as warriors for tolerance and inclusion. That was John Howard in his preface to Peter Curdy's Tyranny of Tolerance. Well, I can't think of a better person to welcome here tonight to launch our program than that man himself. Recently here at CIS, it was a great privilege to introduce Peter Costello uh, on a budget briefing as our greatest treasurer, certainly in living memory. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome our greatest prime minister in living memory, John Howard. And my colleague who will be with us here this evening is um, uh, a, a colleague who will be heading our culture, progress and civil society. Uh, he's been with the CIS now for more than a decade. He's made a name, a name for himself on health issues. He's written some groundbreaking research on a child protection and, among other areas of research, why the history wars matters. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeremy Samet. Well, let me, let me start because it's all happening right now in Britain and the reason why John Howard is here tonight 
and not on June 19 is because mm. he had to go to Britain to see the Prime Minister, Theresa May. Given the shenanigans and uh, the dramas in Westminster this week, do you think that the British people are having second thoughts about leaving the European <coughs> Union? No, I don't. I don't think there's any doubt that they still want to leave the European Union and I would suggest, based on polls that have been taken uh, recently and just intuition that, if anything, they're angry that it has taken so long to get to the point of final departure. OK, but the conventional wisdom is that Theresa May made a spectacular miscalculation when she called an early election last year. Majorities dwindled dramatically. It's now a minority government. Um, the conventional wisdom now, Westminster, is that she is probably on political life support. Whom do you think is likely to replace her? Well, I don't think any alternative has emerged. And um, although she has lost an enormous amount of authority because she called an election to give herself a landslide win and didn't get it, and the most important commodity that any political leader has is authority. Authority is more important than popularity. Mm. And... She has certainly lost an enormous amount of authority. However, don't underestimate the absolute distaste and hostility of the Ulster Unionists who are providing her with a majority in the House of Commons towards Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn, of course, flirted with the IRA and uh, he has a long record of anti-Semitism. I mean, it, it's the, the, the level of anti-Semitism that that he has embraced as something of a scandal in the, in the British Labor Party, amongst its more sensible elements. <clears throat> and even with all the difficulties that Theresa May has, the most recent polls still put the Tories in a reasonably strong position. But time is running out. Um, I'll be fascinated to see what the reaction of the European Union is to the Chequers deal. Um, this was I, mapped out last Friday. Last Friday. Yep. <clears throat> fundamental to what uh, uh, that deal represents is the rejection of um, free movement of people uh, within the European mm -hmm. Union. And I can't see how the European Union can agree to her re Britain rejecting mm -hmm. free movement of people. Okay. So before we start talking about um, culture... Uh, I want to just ask you one other question about Westminster politics. The betting markets say that Boris Johnson would be the likely successor to Theresa May. And uh, <clears throat> Max Hastings, who was uh, Boris's former boss at the Daily Telegraph mm. in Britain for the best part of a decade, he's taken to the London Times today and he says, quote, Johnson's glittering intelligence is not matched by self-knowledge. He sees his place in the nation's history in Churchillian terms, whereas others including most of the Parliamentary Conservative Party, would cast him as a blackadder in a blonde wig. Mm. <laughs> Max Hastings goes on to say, should he ever achieve his towering ambition to become Prime Minister, a signal would go forth to the world that Britain had abandoned any residual aspiration to be viewed as a serious nation. John Howard. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can, uh, I can sort of... I, I, I don't want to draw comparisons, but I can remember language, or I've read about, I don't remember it, uh, I've read about language of that type that was used about Winston Churchill by Tory grandees. Right. Uh, in, uh, so I, I just dismiss yes. that. Yeah. Um, Max Hastings is a, is a seriously good military historian and a very good writer, and I've read a lot of his books, uh, and, and he's worth listening to. 
I don't think <coughs> there is any plot afoot at the moment to remove Theresa May, mm -hmm. but she did run a very bad election campaign. Mm. Uh, she, um, uh, I suppose, dumped on top of many of her own strongest supporters uh, uh, an ill-thought-out retirement policy. And um, she is probably regarded as not a very good campaigner. Um, but I don't think there's any consensus around an alternative at the present time. I think Johnson would be very popular in uh, the Tory shires. Uh, he would be very popular amongst the rank and file of the grassroots, the grassroots of the conservative movement. But there would be doubts about his ability uh, to lead the parliamentary party within the sections of the parliamentary party. And there would be implacable hostility to him uh, amongst those who, in the Conservative Party, who wanted to remain in the European Union. And <clears throat> uh, let me put it this way, speaking from some experience in these matters, when you have leadership changes, you, you, you've got to have them occurring in circumstances where they are broadly acceptable uh, to the people who are going to be governed by the changes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think we've seen plenty of evidence okay. in the past uh, uh, several years, in the past several decades of that not being the case. Now, the Australian people retired you from public life they ten did. and a half years ago. Mm. You like the way I said that? Retired you from public life? No, they batted me out. Don't try politically correct <laughs> language on me. Well... It's been <laughs> ten and a half years is a long time, and yeah. in your preface to Australia, okay, not okay. even. But, but, um, but in Benelong they did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't muck around in Benelong. We, we, we won't start who beat you in Benelong either. No. Um, so ten and a half years. Yeah. In your preface to Peter Curdie's book, you say that the quality of public debate in Australia has taken a dramatic turn for the worst. You go on to say ignorance and bigotry have been displayed towards people expressing traditional views on social issues. This has occurred, incredibly enough, in the name of greater tolerance mm. and acceptance of alternative points of view. Mm. How do you account for these trends since you left office? Well, I think it's, it's a worldwide trend. It's not confined to Australia, but I think we have coarsened, not only coarsened the political debate, but we have lost a capacity to have a civilised discussion absent accusations of bigotry and racism and discrimination on important issues. A very good example is immigration. Now, this country has benefited enormously from immigration and there remains a broad level of support for immigration in this country. But there is an argument that the current level could well be too high. And there's an argument it is having an adverse effect on things like housing prices and and, and, and uh, urban congestion in the bigger cities. We ought to be able to have a serious debate about this without people who are involved in the debate being accused of being bigoted or racist. But, but it seems that there's nothing in the middle anymore, uh, that you either have people who are in favour of um, uh, a big Australia that where you just endlessly add to our numbers by migration, or alternatively, you are, you are a racist. Now, there's somewhere in the middle. When we first came into office a long time ago in 1996, we actually cut immigration in, in our first term. Yeah, we did. And incidentally, some of the advice we had from our bureaucrats at the time was that it, it wasn't costly to cut immigration. In fact, it was the reverse. Now, that 
seems not to be the case. It seems that the advice that's coming now from our bureaucrats is that is that actually uh, having more migrants boosts our economy. I'm I'm a little confused about that, but just leave leave that aside. But we cut it. But then later on, mm -hmm. when our economy was in a different condition, uh, we had very high levels of immigration and. The, the big takeout I took on immigration, uh, particularly uh, fury over our border protection policies uh, in 2001. It's a and tamper, asylum seeker standoff. Yeah, yeah yep. exactly. Is that the Australian people will always support a high level of immigration, provided they believe the government is controlling it and the government is choosing people on the basis of the contribution they make to the country. Now, that's been our happy experience. And uh, the Australia you see today is a product of that, but it, it ought also to be uh, a product of an environment in which you can seriously debate uh, whether or not you can cut it without being accused of being a racist, without being accused of being intolerant or whatever. Jeremy Salmon. Well, on that question, one of your most famous statements was that the things that unite Australians are more important than the things that divide them. However, you're also probably the first politician in the Western world to identify the threat of identity politics when you coined the term minority fundamentalism mm -hmm. in 1994. Do you think that the divisions and polarisations that we're seeing today are different to the divisions and polarisations we saw in the past, for instance, after the Whitlam government and after the dismissal? Look, I think they are. I think, the, I think what has happened is that identity politics has fragmented the political debate. I think increasingly political parties uh, appeal to groups in the community according to what they have in common as distinct from the rest of the community. And I think that is a thoroughly bad development. I grew up in politics believing that what a political party should do is develop a program built around a philosophy. You didn't appeal to particular groups of small business operators. You appeal to small business, whether the small business was run by an Anglo-Celtic Australian or by a Chinese Australian or by an Italian Australian or a Czech or whatever. Uh, but I think we have progressively over the years embraced uh, an approach which is based on appealing to individual groups in the community. Now, I think part of it came out of the obsession with ethnic political advantage amongst different migrant groups with an obsession for what I would call zealous multiculturalism, whereby you, in order to gain political advantage, you identified yourself as being more pro a particular ethnic group. In other words, this party was for all the Greeks, or this party was for all the Italians, and this party was anti-something else. Now, I think that's <coughs> thoroughly bad development, but of course it's, it's progressed from that, not only here but in, in, in the United States. I think Hillary Clinton... Uh, largely lost the election because of identity politics. She believed that if you accumulated a sufficient level of support amongst women, amongst gays, amongst blacks, amongst different groups, you would get to 50 plus one and to hell with the social consequences of dividing people according to whether they were black or white or, 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 or Jewish or whatever. Now, that I think is thoroughly bad. Um, and you see it now with the composition uh, of, of uh, parliamentary parties. There's, I, mean, I often amuse myself by um, <laughs> reading the occupational 
backgrounds of the last Chifley cabinet. Now, the last Chifley cabinet uh, had, you, you had, you know, famously you had uh, an ex-engine driver as Prime Minister. Sure, you had in Bert Evatt uh, a, a lawyer and an eminent former judge and, and, and so forth. Not possessed of very good judgment, but certainly very <laughs> legally very well qualified. You had, you had two farmers. Uh, you had a publican in John Armstrong. Um, you had a tobacconist. I mean, that's practically a criminal offence. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but he was from Bathurst. So, uh, so that, that made him acceptable. But my point is that it was a more diverse sort of group. And mm. I, I think we have narrowed the gene pool and we have this terrible development where an increasingly large number of members of parliament on both sides uh, has a, have life's experience entirely working in politics. You go to the university, you go to the union office, mm. and then you go onto a member of parliament staff, or if you're on the liberal side, you skip the union office and you, you go straight on to the side. Now, there's a place for uh, those sort of people. I mean, my, my political mentor, John Carrick, who died at the age of just short of 100 years, only a few weeks ago, um, he, he spent his whole working life after he came back from being a prisoner of war of the Japanese working for the Liberal Party before he entered the Senate. Now, and he was an you know, outstanding um, political tactician and a wonderful man. But, and, and I can think of others, who, but, but it's, it's overdone and I think it's, and it's, and it's a reflection of, of the problem. But, I but back to identity politics, yeah. uh, I think there's no question that identity politics <clears throat> is more entrenched in the American scene than it is here, at this stage at least. And you may recall a book that was published in the early 1990s by a left liberal of all people, the distinguished historian Arthur Schlesinger's Schlesinger, The Disuniting of America, yeah, right? Yeah, well, Arthur Schlesinger was one of John Kennedy's senior advisors and he was a speechwriter. Mm. And he wrote this book called The Disuniting of America and in 1992. And, he, and he, 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 he attacked what he called zealous multiculturalism and he also attacked identity politics. And he was a great fan of the old melting pot. Uh, which, which built the American identity. You draw people from everywhere, but once they arrive, they're part of a, a common group and they, they don't lose their love of their country. They don't lose their separate religious attitudes if they are religious. Of course not. But the idea is you unite them behind a common civic ethos. And I think what identity politics is doing is destroying a common civic ethos that you're encouraging people to think of themselves increasingly in, in, I mean, it's, it's really quite amusing. So much of this done in, in, in the name of tolerance, particularly racial tolerance, yet what is happening is that people are being encouraged to think of themselves more than they did years ago as being a Chinese-Australian or Greek-Australian or Anglo-Celtic. And I think it is uh, an extremely bad event. But worst of all, it, it, it defies the capacity of a political party to develop a program that has universal appeal. Mm. And, mm. and in the, I mean, speaking as a Liberal, obviously, I want the Liberal Party to appeal to all Australians in relation to lower taxation and free enterprise and, and a freer labour market and, and a more dynamic economy. I don't care what their ethnic mm. background is. I don't care what their occupational background is, but I do care 
whether they're willing to embrace a common program. And these issues, they matter to that on that political level, but mm. they also matter in terms of how our law operates and how our institutions operate as well. Because one of the big things about identity politics is that in the context of anti-discrimination law and laws like Section 18C, they effectively turn identity politics into a weapon uh, that attacks the fundamental freedoms that many Australians accept, uh, have accepted as a part of liberal democracy for as long as we've been a federation. Yeah, look, I know it's a dangerous thing to say, but in, in some respects, anti-discrimination laws have added to the problem. Yeah. Uh, you, you have this situation where, where you know, there is a legitimate nervousness about whether the exemptions granted to faith-based schools, whether they be Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, Muslim, whatever, whether those exemptions are going to be taken away or watered down by state governments. Now, the common sense thing is that if you are running a Catholic school, you ought to be able to employ people who give general assent to the doctrines of the Catholic Church. They don't have to be particularly zealous. They don't have to be people who go to Mass every Sunday. But they surely you're entitled to say, well, look, we're running a Catholic school. We want to you know, have people who give general assent. Now, that, to me, makes sense. In fact, it... That sort of doctrine made sense to the Victorian Parliament 10 years ago when John Brumby was Premier and they passed a, an Equality Act which dealt with discrimination in the workplace and it said that this act will not apply to the employment of people by political parties. In other words, uh, they were encouraged to the view that if you are the Labor Party, you shouldn't have to employ somebody who's hostile to the Labor philosophy. Now, I think that's right. I, I mean, I, mean I'm, I, I don't expect the ACTU headquarters in Melbourne to have its uh, switchboard operated by a member of the HR Nichols Society. <laughs> uh, 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 I, I don't expect that. But I think that's a perfectly legitimate thing. Now, I think that, that we're in this situation where, oh, you know, maybe, yes, maybe. Now... Uh, okay, some people hearing me say this will say, well, what's he talking about? Nobody's talking about taking away these exemptions. Yes, they are. Uh, they're talking about taking them away in Western Australia, talking about taking them away in the Northern Territory, and you will have agitation at the state government level. Now, how we get our heads around what is a, a fundamentally common-sense approach and, and what is distressing about this identity politics is that the average Australian would nod their head hearing somebody say, well, if you're running a Catholic school, you, ought to, you shouldn't be forced to employ somebody who's hostile to the Catholic religion. Or if you're, if you're the Labor Party, you shouldn't have to employ somebody who's a, a member of the Liberal Party who's hostile to its philosophy. And that's common sense. Yet we live now in a society where those common sense rules are suspended. And uh, I would like to see a bipartisan calling out of that. I mean, it would help, and you would solve a lot of these difficulties if you had common sense statements from both sides of politics about the absurdity uh, of the way in which we've really made anti-discrimination okay, legislation we, the new black. When we talk about identity politics, just to be clear, we're <coughs> talking about dividing people by race, religion, gender, ethnicity and whatnot. Here's a classic case in point that happened in this country earlier this year. We had the Nurses and the Midwives Association 
being told that there was a code of conduct. And I'll just read read you out the code. Nurses and midwives should uphold, quote, culturally safe and respectful practices for Indigenous patients. And this should involve the acknowledgement of white privilege as a part of cultural safe practice. Now, the Wall Street Journal editorial page, which is admittedly a centre-right paper, they very rarely... Don't be apologetic. No, I'm not. No, but well, well, in the sense that... (laughs) Well, on Radio National, I need to make that disclaimer. But Mm. nevertheless, this is what the Wall Street Journal said. The implication is that nurses must confess their sins of being born white and having learned how to care for patients as a kind of political expatiation before they can treat someone. What do you make of that? Well, I, I agree with the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> <laughs> it's self-evidently. I, 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 but, but, uh, well, what does that tell you about the country's cultural landscape in 2018? Well, but I think those sort of things should be more vigorously denounced. They should be more vigorously denounced. And the... The Australian public will take a lead on these sorts of things, and I think those things should be more vigorously denounced by both sides of politics, not just one, but both. Okay, but what about the move to crack down on Qantas employees, what they can and cannot say? This was the edict. (laughs) Staff, this was Qantas staff, said that they should avoid using words such as mum and dad, husband and wife, (coughs) in order to avoid offending some hypothetical passenger. Yeah, well, where, where was the political leadership condemning that? Well, well, unfortunately, nobody did attack it. I, a lot of passengers did, <laughs> <laughs> which really makes my point. But if you were Prime Minister, what would you have said oh, at look, the time? Oh, look, don't know that. Ah, Jeremy. No. They, you, there'll be somebody, there'll be a journalist present who <laughs> make something of that. Back on to identity politics and anti-discrimination laws. One of the great achievements of liberal democracy is that it's allowed us to live together peacefully despite our differences by respecting the rights and freedoms of everybody. Identity politics tries to, as you pointed out in the forward to Peter's book, ironically, in the name of diversity, try and force people to think, act and speak the same way around issues around race and gender and sexuality. Mm. Now, one of the organisations that's been very prominent in promoting this in Australian recent years is the Human Rights Commission. You opposed its creation in the Fraser Cabinet. Yeah, I did. Why? Because I didn't think it was necessary. I mean, I think there are three things that are necessary for a free society, given our civilization and background and culture. The first is you, you need a robust parliamentary system, and I'll come back to that in a moment, the first thing. Second thing is you need an incorruptible judiciary. And thirdly, you need a free and sceptical press. Now, I know a lot of politicians, both sides have found a free and sceptical press very uncomfortable, but you need it. And if, I mean, I was reminded last night when I I got this flash on my iPad at about five to 12 that Boris Johnson had resigned. So my wife and I turned on uh, Sky UK, which you can now get the full screen uh, on your Foxtel, and, and of course they were covering it. And within, a half an hour, <coughs> Theresa May was on her feet in the House of Commons making a statement about Brexit and mentioning that Johnson and uh, Gove had resigned. But, but she was immediately accountable and Jeremy Corbyn got up and, 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 and gave a speech and then there were a whole lot of questions. Now that was, you know, she, she was exposed. And my, I mean, I am sceptical about uh, creating a... Uh, a parallel uh, 
legal adjudication system. We have laws, uh, we have uh, a judiciary that in this country has had a record, impeccable record, of not being corrupted. They might have made mistakes, delivered wrong decisions, but nobody's accused our judici judiciary of being uh, corrupted. And, and we do have a, a free and sceptical media, and I'm, and I'm all for it. It's painful on occasions, but it's part of it. So I, I did oppose it. Yes, I did. But it was a commitment that had been made by the Fraser government in the 1980 election campaign. And when I was leader of the opposition, uh, not very successfully in the 1980s, it was part of our policy to abolish the Human Rights Commission. We didn't try to abolish it when we got into government. I suppose that was negligent of us. And... Um, we were probably preoccupied with other things and we probably thought we wouldn't get it through a Democrat Labor-controlled Senate. We probably certainly wouldn't have because it was a Democrat Labor plus some of the Greens that enacted 18C, which we opposed when we were in opposition. And it wasn't under the Andrew Bolt case was delivered that the potency, the malign potency of 18C became apparent. You mentioned the media. Um, I remember when you ran for office in 95-96 and you lamented the state of the public broadcaster, mm. that there was a left-wing bias. Mm. Um, to what extent uh, has that bias become more entrenched at the public broadcaster? Well, I think the media now is, is, is far more polarised than it was 20 years ago. I mean, we, we, there's, there's no doubt about that. Uh, but the, the, the issue with the ABC, and I don't think you will find on the record any statement by me that I was in favour of privatising the ABC. I, I, I actually do support having a publicly funded broadcast. But should, should taxpayers be uh, subsidising left-wing comedy, for example? Well, I think the ABC needs uh, greater balance, but I don't think the solution is to abolish or to privatise the ABC. Now, that may be an unpopular statement to make to some people in this audience. Well, let, let me read something out from Kerry O'Brien, your old nemesis <coughs> on the 7.30 Report program. This is what he said just a couple of days ago. He mm. said, the ABC is the most scrutinised institution in this country, and yet somehow with its unique reach across the nation from its radio, <coughs> its television and online presence, it manages to please most of the nation most of the time. Independent survey after independent survey over many years now has measured a far, far higher degree of trust and regard for the ABC than any other institution in the country, public or private, by a country mile. John yeah, Howard. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, what else would you expect, character? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, really. Well, uh, but before you impugn someone's motive, no, I'm not their argument. No, no, I, I, I'm aware of that argument, but it's not accurate. Uh, <laughs> the ABC has admitted that its uh, news bulletins in the evening, their audiences have declined, and I think. The main reason their audiences have declined is they are no longer doing what they did um, even five or ten years ago, and that is reporting national affairs. I mean, let me give you an example mm -hmm. that I just comes to mind. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had some extremely good economic figures. Uh, the quarterly accounts, they were very, very good figures, low unemployment. Data. Now, five or ten years ago, that would have led the news bulletin in, in New South Wales ABC. Instead of that, uh, we had... The first story was about a data breach. And the second story was about those containers falling off uh, uh, that ship off Newcastle. Now, my wife and I were a bit in interested in that second story because they talked about a lot of the stuff ending up on Hawks Nest Beach. And <laughs> Hawks Nest was where, where we used to go for our annual holidays. But, and then the third item was, was, was the economic figures. Now, you may think that's 
My, I'm being pedantic. I'm not being pedantic. Um, the proper role of the ABC, and uh, it's a role that, irrespective of politics, mm. a lot of people used to respect, is that they give real prominence to national political stories. And they, 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 they used to be a trailblazer. Well, not a trailblazer. They used to be a, a leader in that field. Now, I think they've, I mean, the 730 report now is, 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 is absolutely drenched with, with, with gotcha medical exposés. Now, I think the commercials do those things far better. I think the ABC should... You know, and, 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 and the other thing you've got to remember is that in the last 20 years, the last 10 years, and, and the trend is there is certainly a lot more fragmentation of the media. And the, when I first got into office, everybody was obsessed with the false belief that Kerry Packer and Rupert Murdoch owned everything and dominated everything and something had to be done about these two terrible people. Now, the fact is now you've got, with the proliferation of Sky, you've got enormous... Uh, alternative coverage and uh, I think a lot of people who used to watch the ABC News at 7 o'clock are now watching Sky News programs mm. and, and I'm sure that's happening and who's to blame for that? Uh, Jeremy. A lot of what you're talking about is this decline in what we might call a common culture, a common set of values, a common set of expectations. However, one of the reactions that has been suggested to political correctness is to dispense with civility and be overtly politically incorrect. Now, for some individuals, I think of Donald Trump, I think of people like um, Milo Yiannopoulos, that's become a business model and a political model. And I think we're seeing some people in Australia who are also trying to emulate that model as well. Do you think that's the only way to respond to political correctness, no, to no, say nasty I'm, things about your opponents? No, no, I am totally opposed to um, uh, reducing civility in public debate. I think I, I, I don't agree with it. I, mean, I, I think... Um, uh, Donald Trump has done more good things on the international scene than he's been given credit for. But I think one of the reasons he's not being credited for is that I think he sometimes underestimates the, the importance of, of uh, maintaining a level of civility. I, I, uh, I am, and maybe it's a reflection of my age, I find the decline in reasoned civil debate uh, quite appalling. And it's not something that I would recommend to anybody. And if anybody sought my uh, political advice about how they should conduct themselves with a view to achieving preferment or promotion, uh, I certainly would counsel them very strongly against that. It seems very hard these days to have a debate or a discussion on politics without mentioning Donald Trump. You just mentioned the US president. I remember in uh, February 2016, at the height of the Republican presidential primaries, you were on Sky News mm. with Paul Kelly, and you made the point that you would tremble Mm. Do you tremble at the thought mm. of a Donald Trump presidency? Quote, there's an instability about him that bothers me. He's been president for 18 months. Any second thoughts? No, I admit I did say that, and that's how I felt at the time. Uh, and uh, uh, the American people who had the final say in these matters decided to make him president. I think he could well get re-elected. Um, I do. I think the behaviour of the Democrats and the commentariat establishment in America has just been appalling. We just had one long, uninterrupted dummy spit uh, since he won the election. And I think one of the things that he was not being given credit for is that he ran a very, uh, a tactically very astute campaign. He focused on those parts of America where he knew he could get support. 
Now, there was an element of identity politics mm -hmm. in what he did. I mean, he appealed to the sense of grievance amongst white males in Rust Belt states, and he probably exaggerated the extent of their plight, uh, which is probably demonstrated by the fact that unemployment in the United States now has a, a three in front of it. Now, uh, I don't think even he would claim that he's responsible for everything since he, was, uh, he took office in, in January of last year. It's intriguing. 90% of Republicans support Trump, but mm. a lot of high-profile conservatives have come out against him and they want people to vote against the Republican Party at the midterm elections. I think of people like George Will, George Will, the distinguished conservative columnist, uh, Charles Krauthammer, uh, who died recently. He made it very clear that he opposed Donald Trump. He, he, You've was, got opposed people like to, he was opposed to Trump being the Republican candidate. Yeah, but, yeah, but, did, okay, did he, but he, who did he vote for? I, he didn't vote for anyone. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's my understanding at least. But uh, there are other people like PJ O'Rourke, who's a prominent libertarian, who's been a past guest here at CIS. Brett Stevens from the New York <coughs> Times editorial page. John McCain. The Bush family got deep reservations about Donald Trump. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But, but yeah, look, I understand. Don't you think this tells you something? I mean, about the broader conservative movement. These guys are principled free marketeers. They support smaller government. They believe the party of Reagan should be about internationalism, interventionist foreign policy, free trade, and they feel that Donald Trump is upending that Reagan tradition. How would you respond to that? Well, I think it's an oversimplification of, of what Reagan stood for. I mean, Reagan's principal raison d'etre internationally mm. was to bring down the Soviet Union, and he succeeded brilliantly in doing that, along with a bit of help from from uh, uh, Pope okay. John Paul II and Margaret Thatcher. Great book on that, by... By, yeah, John O'Sullivan, yes, the, uh, the, uh, the president, the prime... The Pope, the president and the prime That's minister. Right. I got right. in the right... Former one. editor of Quadrant and former Thatcher yeah, advisor. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Can I just bring you back yeah, to yeah. the questions you raised before about political leadership on some of these contentious mm. cultural issues? Now, during the same-sex marriage postal plebiscite campaign last year, both Bill Shorten and Malcolm Turnbull were basically forced to backtrack on their claims that the <laughs> legalisation of same-sex marriage wouldn't have any implications for religious freedom. And they both promised that protections for religious freedom would be... Well, that religious freedom would be protected. That wasn't subsequently uh, achieved when the Marriage Amendment Act was passed in November. On the weekend, we had uh, Social Services Minister Dan Tehan speak out and say that uh, he supports a Federal Religious Discrimination Act, mm -hmm. which will have implications for the Turnbull government as it awaits the review into religious freedom by former Howard government minister, Philip Ruddick. How do you think the federal parliament should deal with the question of religious freedom? And what might be the consequences if the parliament doesn't take the concerns that religious believers and religious organisations have for the protection of their religious freedoms going forward? Well, in, in fairness to both Bill Shorten and Malcolm Turnbull, I, I don't know that they, it was backtracking. I think both of them said that protecting religious freedom was very important to them. And I think the Prime Minister said that he felt even more strongly about that than he did about changing the law in relation to same-sex marriage. Um, I'd like to see the outcome of the, of the Ruddick inquiry. My view was that this issue should have been addressed at the time of the survey. My fear was that if it was, wasn't addressed, then it would be 
kick down the road and that nothing would come out of it and it would all get too hard. And we'll wait and see. Um, I, I think the, the problem, the most serious problem here is in relation to education. I talked earlier about the right of faith-based schools to employ people who give general assent to the doctrines of the school, not, you know, not excessively zealous, but general assent. In other words, they don't want people who are trying to undermine what the ethos of the school is. And, and also, there's a very important role in relation to parental rights when it comes to the moral education of children, and this arose in the context of the Safe Schools um, program, where I thought there was an extraordinary timidity um, once the, the nature of that program was revealed, there was extraordinary timidity on the part of state uh, governments, on including um, some of my own persuasion. I think they were just altogether too slow to denounce, and it should never have been allowed to get into the mains, get into the bloodstream that program, because it was obviously uh, doctrinaire, and it, it was trying to run a particular line that most parents, uh, religious or otherwise, had strong views out. About. One, of the, one of the achievements of your government, of course, was to support parental choice in, in education. education. Yeah. And in your memoirs and in your book on Robert Menzies, you talk a lot about this issue. Um, and um, you make the point that when, and this gets missed by a lot of uh, revisionist historians, that when Menzies introduced state aid, I think it was 1963, yeah. uh, he ended a hundred years of discrimination against the Catholic Church. Mm. And uh, this was the direct federal policy mm. funding. Um, when you, we reflect on Menzies' legacies, a legacy, what are the lessons learnt here for um, a parental choice and issues such as safe schools? Well, I think Menzies, yeah, Menzies was right in what he did. Uh, he was also politically astute because uh, he introduced this policy at a time when there was a, a steady erosion of the historic predisposition of the Catholic community in Australia to vote Labor. And he, he certainly <coughs> took advantage of that. And that was, but he took advantage of it by introducing a principled policy. But the, the, the real benefit of this approach, and we certainly added to it, is that Australia in many ways has the most pluralist education system in the world. 34% of all Australian children are educated in non-government schools. You compare that with the United States, where it's a tiny fraction because they have this uh, absolutely you know, this obsessive constitutional view about uh, not not funding religious schools. But me, me, that particular act of Menzies, uh, uh, and it's, it's a long time ago, but it did end a lot of discrimination, and it it helped end a lot of the sectarianism. It wasn't the only thing; there are other yep. developments that was ending sectarianism and. Sectarianism was a, you know, a reminder, particularly to the younger people in the audience who haven't lived through it, that it was very poisonous mm. in the 30s and 40s and into the 50s. And it was very desirable that it be brought to an end. And it was a reminder to the um, Christian community that uh, you know, the things that united Catholics and Protestants were infinitely more important than the things that divided them. What about higher education today? Do you think the parents are placing too much emphasis on their student, on their on their children going to uh, university and not doing, say, tradies? Well, I think society has done that. Yes, mm. I I think the decline in trades education is very regrettable. Um, I'm not sure that 
the balance between university education and trades education is, 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 is right. I think we desperately need more skilled tradesmen. Mm. And, um, but I do think we went through a period where a lot of parents, for understandable, aspirational reasons, wanted um, their children to go to university because that was seen as a pathway to greater affluence. And you can't blame people for wanting the best for their children, but I think, once again, there's a role here for governments to argue the case for uh, a, a, a soundly-based trades education system. And But, you know... We used to have a different school structure that aided that, but that's a long time ago. Speaking of universities, your long-term interest in the cultural and uh, political importance of history, <coughs> which your government actually pursued through the, the National Civics Education mm. Program, has led you to believe that it's important for Australians to study the history of Western civilization. You're now the chairman of the Ramsey Centre, and I think you see this institution as an important way to promote the values, obviously, of Western civilization. Two questions. What happened when ANU rejected the Ramsey bid for a degree in Western civilization? And two, should you have anticipated that the left-wing staff capture of ANU's position, given what we've seen at the US Study Centre, which the Howard government founded and funded, uh, would have happened. Well, I, I've put the study centre to one side, uh, uh, and I just deal with with Ramsey. What you've got to remember is that that the board of which I am chairman are trustees to carry out the wishes of Mr. Ramsey. This is not public money; it's not our money. It was Paul Ramsey's money, and he ref left it on a certain set of conditions. And the first and most important of those conditions was that we should endeavour <clears throat> to establish a partnership with one of what I might loosely call the sandstone universities for a degree in Western civilisation. Now, I get a lot of people who stop me in the street and elsewhere and say, look, John, what you've got to do with that Ramsey money is this. What I've got to do with that Ramsey money is to be faithful to the wishes of the person who left the money. It's called, it's called our trusteeship, and I've got to observe that. Now, obviously... We were disappointed in relation to the ANU. I anticipated difficulties, um, but uh, we had got a long way down the path and it was obvious that there was a rebellion in the ranks and, and that the university felt unable to continue. But we are now having a civilised discussion with another university and uh, we'll continue to do that. And there are other things that we can do as a centre by way of postgraduate scholarships and partnerships with other organisations to pursue Ramsey's legacy. But we, if we're to be faithful to the conditions on which the money was left, and you know, I've got to emphasise that, that we must continue to try and establish a partnership with one of the universities. History? Yep. Very much part of the Western civilisation <coughs> curriculum. There is a growing calls to downgrade, uh, even eliminate, uh, key British symbols in Australian cultural life. Uh, most notably, uh, Australia Day, changing the day from January 26, 1788. A day of shame, according to many critics. Uh, what's your response to this uh, growing call to change Australia Day? Well, I, <coughs> I don't agree with it, uh, obviously. Uh, and I, I don't agree with it because... I, I share the view that given the 
options available at the time, uh, the best thing that happened to Australia was to be colonised by the British or settled by the British. Context is everything, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, context is everything. And, and, <coughs> and, but that's a view that a lot of people express. Yeah. I understand the argument advanced by uh, Indigenous Australians, um, but the reality is that if you hold the view that I do, that the best thing that you can do for Aboriginal Australians is to deal help them in a way that they share the bounty of modern Australia and they are truly part of the bounty of, 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 of the Australian community. Um, I think if you have that philosophy, I ask the question, when else would you have Australia Day? Um, the, only other, the only logical alternative to the 26th of January is the 1st of January, which commemorates the Federation of the Australian Colonies. Now, I don't think Australians are going to give up New Year's Day <laughs> uh, in, 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 in favour of... Uh, of so yeah. I, I really don't. And I just think that it is... And the other alternatives, I mean, in this sort of window dressing of the New South Wales opposition, oh, we're going to replace the Queen's birthday with a special Indigenous Day, but we won't do that while the Queen is still alive. I mean, talk about okay. St. Saint Augustine, make me pure, but not just yet. <laughs> How do we best reconcile Indigenous history with our British past? Well, we, we have done it fairly successfully, uh, I think, until fairly recently. Um, you, you, I mean, you, you count all the facts. Uh, and, and, you know, there's a long historical debate, but, but th there was not an organised political structure uh, in this country at the time of British settlement, which was capable of giving expression to the sort of understanding that was reached mm. in New Zealand and some other places. And I think the best thing that we can do is to recognise the benefits of British settlement uh, and we should stop being apologetic about the advantages of British settlement. One of the great things about Australia, in my opinion, always has been that we've been very clever in taking the good bits of our heritage but rejecting the bad bits. We took from the British um, co the common law, we took the parliamentary democracy, we took the freedom of the press and broadly speaking a sense of humour. But we rejected, we rejected class distinction and the mm -hmm. aristocracy. Uh, we have a far better appreciation of the balance between public and private in, in health and education. We don't have the stratification mm. in those things. We, we recognise that both. And that's been one of the, the genius parts of the Australian achievement is that we've taken the good bits, but we've rejected the bad bits. And that's why, uh, although we have a lot in common with the Brits on certain things, there is a distinctive Australian ethos and way of doing things uh, which has been there forever and, and of course, to which uh, our Celtic inheritance uh, has made a massive contribution as well. Well, what would you <laughs> say to somebody like uh, Race Discrimination Commissioner Tim Sapomasan, who often says that we need multiculturalism to keep the dark underbelly of Australian racism in check, this notion that we are this timelessly racist Yeah, well, country. his starting point is fundamentally different from mine. I mean, of course there are racist people in this country, and of course there were attitudes um, generations ago 
that looked upon Aboriginal Australians as being unable to achieve uh, what other Australians could achieve. Of course they were. And there are still some people who have that view. But that has changed over time. But you don't, in the process of recognising that change and adjusting attitudes and policies accordingly, you don't uh, turn your back uh, on, on a civilisation. And you don't, you don't pretend uh, that we don't owe a lot to uh, those things that gave us practices and attitudes that we take for granted and which, incidentally, are the reason why, in overwhelming measure, millions of people want to come and live here. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean the, the, the fundamental reality is that our society and what we've achieved here is a magnet to millions of people around the world. We shouldn't be ashamed of that. We shouldn't be truculent about it. But it happens above we should not be ashamed of it. Uh, and we lack, on occasion, we lack cultural self-belief. And I think that is a terrible shame. Your critics would say that the uh, New York Times, The Guardian, mm. the rest mm. of the world is constantly scrutinising <laughs> Australia and reacting to events here by condemning some of our treatment of Indigenous people and especially our treatment of refugees. Uh, How do you respond to that criticism that you'll all too often hear on the ABC and the universities that the rest of the world is appalled by Australia's human rights record? Well, I think specifically in relation to migration and refugees, I think the rest of the world is looking increasingly to what Australia (laughs) did uh, as as a solution to their problems. And... Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, not so, I'm, not, I'm not saying there's many self-satisfied mm. sense, but mm. the truth is that no country will accept a fundamental undermining of its cultural identity in, in the name of accommodating people flows. They just won't. And you have to, you've got to understand that. And, and what has happened in Europe is that there was an attempt made to, to, to uh, do that and, and by the most powerful political figure in, on the continent and, 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 and she has suffered as a consequence. This is Angela Merkel yep. and of course a lot of Germans are now recognising your line in 2001 that we will determine who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. Late 2015 you wrote a very important article for National Review, the New York based uh, conservative magazine and you made the point that we still live in a world of <coughs> nation states to pretend otherwise is delusional. Yes, I've had this view for a long time. I think that the principal organising unit in international relations is the nation state. It's not supranational bodies. Mm. We have invested too much faith in supranational bodies. Uh, I invest a lot of faith in, in, in bilateral or multilateral um, cooperation. But there's an enormous difference, as you're seeing with the European Union, between the supranational body represented by John Claude Juncker and, and uh, the individual members of the European Union. And when I was Prime Minister and I looked at Asia, I didn't look at some uh, organising principle for the whole of the region. Mm. I thought in terms of our relations with Japan, with China, with Indonesia, they were all different. And if you tried to harmonise them according to some a- overarching principle, you've got into terrible trouble. But, I mean... Who, who is the, the best remembered individual leader of the Southeast Asian region of the last 50 years? It would be Lee Kuan Yew. Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore. And, yeah. and, and now Singapore is an, an, an extraordinary example of a successful nation state, not as 
democratic as Australia. I mean, let's uh, mm. democracy is a little more guided in, um, <laughs> in, 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 in Singapore than it is here. Uh, incidentally, that was uh, that expression of guided democracy was Sukarno. That's right, in, in, in Indonesia. Yeah, about right. Indonesia, 50s, but, yeah. it, but, it, but it, it has a, a relevance. Now, he was, um, you know, he, he led a remarkable country that was, and, you know, it's an extraordinary tribute to him that it was the one country to which uh, the leader of North Korea was willing to entrust Indeed. his interesting. security. Very and interesting. He is very, that man is very, um, uh, how shall I, he, he thinks about physical security a lot. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> on Lee Kuan Yew, though, it is interesting. On the night that he died, I mean, yeah. you're quite right, he was clearly the most consequential figure mm. in Asia in the post-war period. Neither Late Line nor 730 mm. Report did anything on him. That's a fact. Jeremy, last question before we go to questions. Last question. Let's return to the big picture. Your longtime chief of staff, now Senator Arthur Sinodinus, mm. once said that the that people say that Howard moved Australia to the right, but that's a misunderstanding. The Howard government succeeded because he expressed the innate conservatism of the Australian people. Do you think that in these politically correct, identity politics obsessed time, a government can still win office by appealing to the innate conservatism of the Australian people? <clears throat> yes, I think, it's, I think it can, but every, every era and every time is different. Um, we had a bit of a sweet spot when it came to um, doing things on on the economy, um, and we and we gave a lot of bipartisan support to the Hawke government when it enacted economic reforms. We didn't get a lot in return when we tried to fix the tax system and deregulate the labour market and so waterfront forth. Waterfront reform, waterfront reform, any of those things. But how, however, I still think that you can enact big economic reforms in this country if you appeal to two things. Firstly, the Australian people have got to be satisfied that an economic reform is going to make Australia better. We're, we're quite simplistic in our desire to have reforms that help our country. And you also need to satisfy people that these reforms are fundamentally fair and... Uh, we had a, a lot of trouble persuading the public about the GST. It was never really very popular and it almost cost us the 1998 election. But we managed to do it because in the end people thought, oh, well, I think it'll be better to have it. And I think Howard and Costello have looked after the less fortunate in the community and they were prepared to go along with it. I think you, have, you do that. Um, but there is an in, innate conservatism in the Australian people which is born of a belief that this is a good country and that although there are a share of racists, a share of bigots, there are people who are living in poverty, uh, there are family breakdowns and we've seen some horrible manifestations of those in Sydney in recent times which are immensely distressing uh, to people whose who places we all do a high store on family life. But fundamentally we've done very well and, and that's why People are leery about too much radical change. And I think both sides of politics in Australia, and I, my remarks apply equally to the Labor Party, that don't underestimate the desire of most Australians to hang on to what they've got mm. because they think we've done things pretty well. Now, if that sounds like a very conservative Australian, well, I'll plead guilty.
Edmund Burke would be proud. Now it's time for questions from our audience. And our first question comes from Eugenie Joseph. She's a, a rising star at CIS, one of our economists who's doing a work on um, bureaucratic red tape surrounding childcare. Eugenie. Thank you, Tom. And thank you, Mr. Howard, um, for your insights on all those issues. It's such a privilege to, to he hear those. Um, I wanted to um, see if I could get your insights on the issue of the gender pay gap, which is a big issue under debate in Australia. Um, it's currently reported as 15% by mm. our taxpayer-funded um, workplace gender equality agency. Um, but we know that a lot of that gap can be explained by women and families um, making different choices about um, the hours that, that women work or, or the types of jobs they go into where, where there may be lower wages. What are your thoughts on that? Do you, do you think the gender pay gap is just a manifestation of identity politics um, on gender grounds or, or do you think it does have potential to become a real issue for future governments coming under pressure to do something about it? Well, the, um, the desire of women to be uh, rewarded for doing the same work as men is entirely legitimate. And uh, if, if you're talking about that, I mean, if, if man and a woman are doing the same job, equal amount of work, equal amount of responsibility, of course they should be paid the same. I don't think there's any argument about that. But obviously if you... If you have a broad statistical analysis which doesn't take account of the fact that some of the uh, uh, jobs that are, are lower paid in the community are predominantly filled by women, um, then you can get a distorted picture. But that, of course, raises the question as to whether those particular jobs are under-remunerated anyway and that because of the predominance of women in those jobs, they suffer more than men. But then that again raises the question of whether in the process of increasing the remuneration in those areas of work, uh, you result or you produce higher levels of unemployment uh, in those workplaces. That it's a more complicated picture, but the general principle uh, is, as it was long since stated, of equal pay for equal work. And I don't think anybody, uh, in fairness, and I don't think it, it, it should be too complicated uh, to apply that principle. But in, in, in all of these things, you should never lose sight of the merit principle. And I, I've always believed in, in merit, rewarding people on merit. And I've also believed very strongly that you can never have a society where you have equality of outcomes, but you can have a society where people have equality of opportunity. So and, and I think the, the, the truth is that in the past, uh, a lot of people, a lot of women were denied because of uh, social attitudes the same opportunities to um, get employment in, in areas that were more highly remunerated. So one of those arguments would be that because of past discriminations, we should have mm. policies. A catch-up. Yeah, like affirmative action policies. Um, I am I am very very sceptical about affirmative action policies of, of any kind. I really am. 
I think they ignore merit. They place too much hand, too much authority in the hands of decision makers who are insensitive to anything other than their own doctrines. Next question uh, from Rebecca Lawrence. Uh, is Rebecca Lawrence here? Rebecca Lawrence is a uh, former student of our Liberty and Society program. Rebecca. Um, you talked tonight about your efforts through the Ramsey Centre to introduce a Bachelor of Western Civilisation into universities. Um, I'd also like to bring in the results of a recent CIS poll that showed that the majority of millennials don't know who Mao is, don't know who Lenin is, don't know who Stalin is. Do we need to take even a further step back and radically overhaul what we're teaching in our history curriculums at secondary schools? And should we be injecting some of this education about history's greatest villains into our compulsory education system before students even get to university? Well, well the answer is yes, but you have to be careful of who the decision makers are about the villains. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because some of us might end up being the subject of extension <laughs> study. Um, but look I, look, I agree with that. And, and um, the history curriculum... I mean, there was quite a debate about this some years ago and when the new national curriculum was brought out, I was assured by the then Federal Minister for Education who was a Liberal that oh, it was all much better and everything. I'm not sure it is. But education curricula are still ultimately in the hands of state governments and I think that, that you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll uh, recognise that... that in, in relation to some of the curriculum in, in New South Wales, that uh, Bob Carr, when he was Premier, was placed quite an emphasis on, on history and some of the more traditional structured approach to education. Uh, but in the, that absurd attempt to contextualise everything in terms of Aboriginal disadvantage, uh, interaction with Asia and the environment, I mean, how you sort of rationalise ge geometric theorem with things like that is beyond me. But, uh, Did you remember in, um, I think it was January 2006, and you gave the Canberra mm. Press Club address, yeah. and you were emphasising the importance of education, especially Australian education. And one journalist, I think she was from Channel 7, she thought she was being a bit of a smart-ass, and she got up and she asked you, Mr Howard, could you actually name one of the ships... On the, the, of, the, of the first fleet that came here in 1788? Mm. Your response? Well, I said, Syria. I mean, I named her Sirius, and then she said, yes, I am. <laughs> 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 and I said, no, I said it was a ship. So, yeah. And it wasn't spelt like Sirius. And it wasn't spelt like Sirius either, okay. no. Next question, yeah. Um, yeah. Stephen Schwartz, who's one of our nation's finest educators, former vice-chancellor at Macquarie University. I've been thinking about what to, uh, what's the most important thing. There's so many important things that were discussed today, but can we go back to universities? Um, I think it was maybe Henry Kissinger who's being uh, accredited with the quote that the reason university politics are so vicious is because the stakes are so small. Uh, and I was thinking of that when I read in the paper that one of the reasons given for uh, rejecting the Ramsey Center program from the ANU was the name of the course and that um, the university wanted to call it um, wanted to call it Western Civilization Studies and claimed that the center wanted to call it Western Civilization. And I don't know how many of you are old enough, but 
it may remind you of John Cleese trying to explain the difference between the Judean People's Front and the People's Front of Judea in the movie Life of Brian. Um, these things sound silly and trivial, and it's fun to make fun of them. But are, are you sure that this is just an argument about um, how we go ahead with this grant, or whether this is something much deeper um, about our universities that you're a bit reluctant to well, go into? Vice Chancellor Stephen, I think we are going to find out. Um, my fear is that your fears and, and Henry's could be justified, but it, it's our obligation to um, go right to the end of the road in finding that out. The name, incidentally, of, of, of the degree that was proposed in the ANU was, in fact, the name that was contained in the submission that the ANU put to the Centre, uh, Bachelor of Western Civilisation. Um, the argument was that later was put that oh, it should be Bachelor of Western Civilisation Studies because that is the same title that was used in relation to Islamic studies, Indigenous studies and so forth. Um, without being in any way disrespectful to those studies, I think there is an argument that the centrality of Western civilization in uh, our in the formation of our society warranted a slightly different approach. I mean, one of, if you're talking about the trivial, one of the things that that I, I thought really stood out was the, and, and this is well known to those who followed the debate, which is probably a lot of people in this room, that there was a lot of criticism of Tony Abbott's column in Quadrant. Now, can I say in defence of Tony Abbott that? Tony Abbott probably had more detailed discussions with Paul Ramsey about this whole concept than anybody else. And, and he played quite a significant role in, 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 in discussing and persuading Paul Ramsey about this bequest. And I think that ought to be said. And he, he made the statement that, that the, the centre was not just about Western civilisation, but for Western civilisation. Well, I am for Western civilization, and and I I I found I found, I mean, the fact that people would object to that, uh, I suppose indicates either how fast things have gone, uh, or alternatively, a, you know, an intellectual narrowness of mind which is quite distressing. But wasn't that the point though of that letter? There was a letter written by a signed by a hundred humanities academics at Sydney where they said that Western civilization is, you know, racist, mm. colonialism, oh, exclusionary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're asking people who don't believe in Western civilization to teach. Well, Western no, we're not. I mean, you know, that, but but you know, see, you've got to be careful of falling into the trap of appearing to want the project to fail. And this was a point that was, in fairness to him, was made by the Vice-Chancellor of Sydney University. Look, it's difficult, and I know as well as anybody just how many left-wing sentiments there are in universities and how bitterly opposed many academics are to the whole concept. But I also know that we have at our... I suppose it was the wrong word. We have this an extraordinary opportunity because of the generosity and commitment of the late Paul Ramsey to try and do something long-term to reverse it. Now, if we find we can't do that because of the attitude 
of universities, then okay, we have discharged our trust. But we can't give up at the first whiff of grape shot because we're not being faithful to the trust that was given us by Paul Ramsey. Okay, let's hear from Belinda Hutchison, who's the Chancellor of the University of Sydney. Belinda, just there. I would just like to speak in defence of universities in Australia because I think Tom knows only too well, and I know only too well, that quite frankly today the politicisation of what goes on at universities I think is much, much less than it was many years ago. When I was at university we had its time, we had thousands of students marching down Eastern Avenue. Today, if we get a rally, we're very lucky to get 20 to 30, maybe 40 students rallying amongst um, a number of staff members. You know, I can probably name on one hand those who are the staff members who are going to be absolutely out there pushing against certain things. It is not the situation that I think is painted in the press today about the universities going to hell in a handbasket. The fact is, we have 60,000 students, we have 10,000 staff, of which there's probably 4,000 academics, and the vast majority of them are just getting on with their job and trying to teach our students to have the best possible opportunity to become leaders of our nation, not on the basis of <coughs> politicisation. And, and John, John, just to you, I think in terms of you know, your involvement. You know, John, we gave an honorary doctorate to a, a couple of years ago, and it was interesting. Yes, we did have a protest, but quite frankly, it was pretty pathetic, John, I have to say. <laughs> I'd have felt lonely without it. Exactly. <laughs> there was a little bit of noise, but quite frankly, there wasn't much you else. You were noisy at the CFMEU in Pitt Street. <laughs> exactly. I, th I thought it was actually quite pathetic. And then we gave Bob Hawke one too, and we had a bit of a protest there too. So I think, you know, students will always be students. Yeah. There will be certain stuff. Following from Belinda is a very sound point. I mean, if you go back to the late 60s and early 70s, there was a lot of radicalism on university campuses. I know a lot of this had to do with the Vietnam War at time mm. and whatnot, mm. but you don't quite see that radicalism on campus these days, yeah. to be yeah, fair. Well, I, I'm not, I mean, I, I, I don't necessarily dissent from anything Belinda said. In fact, I was, I was making the point that we have to um, work our way through uh, and, and if we can get a a satisfactory arrangement with uh, Sydney University, well, I'd like it. And, and I've had a very uh, valuable series of discussions with the Vice-Chancellor and I hope it works. Uh, one of our long-time supporters is Rafe Champion. Uh, Rafe, question for the former PM. First of all, thanks for the entertainment provided by all the people on the panel tonight. Uh, my question, uh, the background of my question is the, the surveys of attitudes of millennials. Uh, this is pretty concerning and I'd just like to find out if uh, you've got any views on the, the position of, of the young Liberals. And you're allowed to say you don't know if you're not in touch with young Liberals, but I'd really, it's something to wonder about whether the young Liberals uh, have got, has, can provide leadership to those millennials who have got very strange and unsatisfactory attitudes. <laughs> uh, no, I might, don't, sorry. No, you're allowed to say you don't know but I think it's a matter of concern and something we should be thinking about. Um, I, 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 I recognise the potency of those figures and I know they were generated out of a survey that the, that the CIS um, set up. Mm -hmm. But I think you have to understand that once the Soviet Union collapsed and the Cold War ended, 
that the the prize fight was over. Uh, and 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 once the prize fight is over, over time you forget the names of the combatants. And politics after 1991 was was transformed. You even had Fukuyama talking about the end of history. He was wrong. It wasn't the end of history. Um, I'm quite sure, and maybe you can correct me, Tom, but were these young people asked about it, whether they knew who Osama bin Laden was? Oh, we didn't ask that question. Hmm? We didn't ask that question. No, no. I think a lot of them would have known who yep. Osama bin Laden was because he was the relevant contemporary threat. Now, um, most people in this room, because they study these things crazy, know about Mao and Lenin and Stalin. Um, uh, I'm not sure that they know, and, I mean, a lot of them would know names like Kennedy and Churchill because they are still the subject of popular entertainment. I mean, you've had that, uh, you know, Darkest Hour movie and so forth. And so I think we have to understand the fact that they are of an earlier era. They're an era that influenced a lot of us, and we know all about it. But um, Mao Zedong is... Yeah, but to be fair, though, I, th these are international trends, uh, PM, and let me put this yeah. to you, that uh, in Britain, I'm just going from the top of my head, yeah, there were similar polls. But yes, but, but the, the, a third of British millennials yeah. think that Tony Blair committed more war crimes than Mao Zedong. Um, a third of... Yeah, of of yeah. American millennials think mm. that George W. Bush killed more people than Joseph Stalin. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that's, but, but you see, look, I, I mean, I, I think it's appalling, but you've got to put it in context. You've got to understand mm. that, that, that we, we are drawing on an, uh, an atypical knowledge of history and we are drawing on a time that really was totally transformed by the collapse of the Soviet Union in in 1991, and the, I mean, I, I, I think it does illustrate that we should be taught more history. Mm. Um, I mean, I find even more appalling, if you like, when you're talking about Australian history, the fact that, that when I, I was giving a speech to a group of people, who, most of whom were under the age of 45, and, and about 300 of them, and I made the point that the secret ballot was invented in Australia, and that women had the vote in Australia long ahead of the vote in, in the United States mm. or Great Britain. And I asked how many people in the audience knew that, and I got six right. hands put up. Mm. Now, I think that that is an appalling thing as mm. well. Mm. When we've never had a better educated, never spend as much money on education, people now don't spend as long in school as, yeah. as And the other point have. to bear in mind too is that mm. a lot of these young people have access to this marvellous thing called the iPhone. So they've got so much knowledge in their mm. fingertips. We didn't have that when we were growing up, to be fair. Oh, I went you deny, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, right. you're breaking my ladies heart. And ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> yeah. uh, round of applause for John Howard. Yeah. Yeah. We at the, the Centre for Independent Studies are very blessed to have a very distinguished board of uh, directors and our chairman is one of our nation's leading business figures. It's a great thrill to introduce our chairman, Peter Mason. Don't do the vote, thanks. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Both uh, Tom and just now Prime Minister, you 
have referred to uh, effectively context being everything. Um, the context is that we are here to launch the culture, prosperity and civil society studies at the Centre for Independent Studies. We quite like the word studies, John. Um, <coughs> we're perfectly happy to live with that, have done for 40 years and intend to do so for another 40 years. Uh, the Centre for Independent Studies under uh, Tom's leadership and together with his colleagues have determined that one of the great issues that we have to deal with uh, the, is the context of the issues that we have been discussing today. And you are here, we have asked you here to help us to launch this and you have done that with, as you always do with everything you do, wonderful distinction. I might. <laughs> You've been a very important person in all of our lives. I might just point out that in the terms of context in mine, I first came across you, I didn't meet you, but I came across you when I was marching through the streets of Lane Cove, stuffing letterboxes with pamphlets for the new potential member for Benelong. Context being 1974, Gough Whitlam was Prime Minister and I was going to support anybody who was going to be <laughs> in that seat. Uh, but boy, what a career uh, you have had since and uh, what a great contribution you have made to this nation. So we, as the Centre for Independent Studies, thank you for that. Thank you for being with us. Look forward to working with you in what is really a very important journey to ensure that we don't fall for the identity politics thing. Thank you all for being here. There will be a lot more of this sort of thing uh, to come and we invite you to that in advance. Thank you, John, indeed. Thank you, Peter. Uh, Peter, thank you. Peter, it's not over yet, mate. Um, Thank you all for being here. Thank you, uh, PM. Thank you, Jeremy Samet. Thank you, Peter. Um, we here at CIS, uh, we don't receive any tax dollars. Uh, we're proudly independent and uh, we rely on the generosity of uh, individuals. So if you enjoy tonight, uh, please think about us um, in the months and years to come. Uh, our next event uh, will be in this room on Wednesday week. That is July 18. We're hosting a, an Oxford-style debate on the question of whether Russia is the strategic threat that the media conventional wisdom says it is. Uh, it's an important date because, among other things, it happens just after the Trump-Putin summit in Helsinki. But it's also a significant date because it's the centenary of the Bolshevik assassination of the Tsarist royal family. So we've got uh, a couple of world-acclaimed uh, uh, historians on that question, and we'll be talking about Russia and the West. Uh, also, later in the month, we're hosting a debate uh, on the question of phonics. Uh, it, again, it'll be an Oxford-style debate. We're expecting about 600 people. We were going to have it here. Then we moved it to the New South Wales Parliament House, and now we've moved it somewhere else. The details are out there. Uh, please come to that if you can. And finally, uh, ladies and gentlemen, just outside, books are being sold at the reception area. Uh, there's Jeremy Samet's book on the madness of Australia's child protection. Uh, there's Peter Curdy's The Tyranny of Tolerance that we mentioned earlier on. And, of course, there's John Howard's edited collection of speeches when he was Prime Minister. All that sold courtesy of uh, Connor Court 
and Anthony Capello. We hope, you see, hope to see you again next time, and thanks so much for being here this evening.